Hello and a warm welcome to Econoday Unplugged on Tuesday, the 27th of April 2021. Mark Pender is across from the stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. Last Tuesday, the World Health Organization reported that new global coronavirus cases had reached another record weekly high. And that must raise doubts about prospects for a strong pickup in economic activity this quarter. It also means that the vaccination rollout remains as, if not even more important than ever, to the global recovery. And that variations in national inoculation rates will continue to help shape investor sentiment over coming months. More immediately, over the next few days, we'll get the first look at how the pandemic impacted economic growth at the start of the year. Provisional GDP reports are due from a number of countries, including the US and many Eurozone states, and now follow news yesterday of a surprisingly strong 1.6% quarterly rise in South Korea that took total output there back above its pre-pandemic level even. We'll also receive more up-to-date figures on sentiment in the US and Europe, as well as an inflation update in the Eurozone. And of course, it's FOMC week, and so I guess we should start there. So, Mr. Pender, by and large, we've had a string of surprisingly strong US data since the start of the month. And I suspect mm. we're looking forward to very robust first quarter GDP on Friday. So mm. what chance the Fed will sing from a slightly less dovish hymn sheet? What chances? I would say that there is slim and none that there would be any indication tomorrow. Stop on sitting the, on the fence. <laughs> right. <laughs> that there would be any indication tomorrow unless it is so you know, uh, obtuse and so subtle that, you know, it, it, it would make your brain spin. But, uh, you know, it, it's going, um, the Fed's job right now isn't done. And um, the indications from Fed speak are that they're going to need a number of extraordinarily large um, gains in monthly employment before they get that inflection point in their communications, which will be that somewhere in the distant future, there'll be less bond buying, you know, less QE. I think that that is, and how they will state that will probably be in some kind of using the words, um, uh, uh, their word, their toolbox for words or for modifiers are, are substantial for something you know, major significant for something less than substantial and then moderate, maybe they'll go moderate to significant. So, you know, they might say that, and then the other side of that is slight, you know, or slight to moderate or marginal. So, you know, their inflection would be something like, you know, QE, if, if, you know, we get an extended period of extraordinarily strong job growth, then, um, you know, uh, it, it could possibly be that there will be a, a, a marginal to slight reduction in, uh, in QE. And so, and of course the markets will go nuts and they probably won't even break it down that clearly. So, um, it's always, it's going to be all veiled and it's, and it's going to be, you know, not only veiled, the, the, the that's the, at the back of the stage in front of the stage is going to be a bunch of, you know, uh, blue smoke. <laughs> and then, and uh, so I think that that is going to be, the, uh, that's their approach. And uh, it's not like they're going to come out and just say the, you know, what's what. 
Uh, they're going to, I think, do this slight slivering uh, kind of thing, and it might backfire. I mean, you know, it might be uh, so, but we'll have to see. I was going to ask, ask Marsh in terms, in terms of looking for, let's say, potential backfiring. I wonder what you think the chances that of you know the Fed could be seen to be falling behind the curve. I mean, what, what's what, what's the uh, kind of day's consensus on the uh, GDP number on Friday? The GDP number for is right now at 6.5 percent for the annual rate in the first quarter, and that would be acceleration from. Um, 4.3 percent um, in the uh, fourth quarter and this is going to be according to the forecasters driven significantly by personal consumption expenditures which right. is uh, consumer spending which is being fed by this colossal amount of uh, stimulus uh, whether stim- uh, whether federal direct checks or um, monetary uh, stimulus that's keeping the interest rates down so uh, uh, and w- w- so, I mean, you're going to get this completely distorted, um, uh, hyper-stimulated uh, uh, first quarter that can't extend. The, the stimulus just can't go on, especially at the federal level, uh, you know, uh, I- into this quarter, even though there are expectations that there, w- there will be some, some more fiscal stimulus. But it's, uh, it looks now like the Biden administration is talking about taxation. So that is the other side of this, the ultimate other side of this. That that's when the you have to pay, uh, you know, you have to pay the piper. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, so I mean, you know, my sense is is that that this this will be the the great peak, uh, and hopefully with the vaccinations and and well, hopefully with the trading partners as well that. Uh, you know, this this acceleration will slow or this burst will won't be repeated, but there will still be growth, you know, from the first quarter level. And um, and hopefully that that will be able to stick. And then once that sticks for a while and employment, you know, in theory uh, returns to where it was, then the stimulus could be withdrawn. And I think that that where I still think we're far short of, of that point as far as the Federal Reserve, but they, that is the risk. And how do you know that they haven't, um, they're behind the curve? Uh, and I, you have to look at the core inflation rates and they're going up, but they're still well below the 2% target and their slope really isn't pivoting very high. But if you look at non-core rates, you exclude energy, then it does. It doesn't look so good. So I mean, it's a delicate game right now that they're playing. And if inflation does take off, uh, then uh, you know, I guess all the bets are out the window. Right. I was actually looking a bit further ahead because there's some you know, different policies regarding this in terms of QE and, and interest rates. Um, I think as far as the likes of the, the ECB have intimated, they're kind of intimating that you know, QE won't really uh, be phased out altogether. Well, at least I should say rather we won't see interest rates being hiked until effectively QE's run its course. Whereas for the likes of the Bank of England, they've kind of intimated that rates would have to go up to about one and a half percent before they really get rid of QE altogether. What's the attitude from the Fed with regard to you know when interest rates are going to go up versus tapering quantitative easing it's going to be uh, tapering first it's and and they'll go from there that there uh, um, it's you know that is the more uh, 
subtle nuanced of the policy tools. So, and they're going to try to make this as comfortable and as this lift off and rates are, are eventually as, you know, as uh, imperceptible as they possibly can. And to do that, I think they'll be doing incremental, indicating in a long distance away, some kind of in- incremental shift in QE uh, toward a tapering. So um, I think that that's going to be the Fed strategy. And um, But I don't think that that's uh, anywhere uh, close uh, yet. Um, and But like I say, if, if inflation begins to... Uh, uh, Pick up. We certainly had um, inflation expectations readings, whether it's from on the consumer side or whether on the business side, are both at um, historic highs. Even you know, I mean, it's incremental on the business side. It, I think it was 2.8 percent as mm-hmm. measured by the Atlanta Fed, but that's the highest it's been. So yeah. and. Um, and uh, and uh, as far as University of Michigan measure, it it has spiked, and we saw it in the consumer confidence today. They also have the conference board has its own measure. It's an odd measure, um, uh, but it's at six point seven percent, and uh, that is very high. It didn't accelerate from April uh, from March uh, in April's report, but. Uh, uh, other indications in that report. We just came out, so I can just re- really quickly uh, describe what it is. It's very, very strong, much stronger than Econoday's consensus. Once again, the forecasters in the U.S. are way behind, uh, are, are consistently behind uh, um, the actual uh, strength of the data. But still, the data isn't that enormously strong. It's still 10 points, uh, uh, 10% or, uh, or, or more below where the level was uh, before the pandemic and consumer confidence. But what this report did show was uh, an exceptional uh, improvement in the consumer's assessment of the current jobs market, whether uh, uh, jobs are hard to get or whether they're plentiful. This mix um, shows substantial s- acceleration from March. And remember, March had a 916,000 mm-hmm. non-farm payroll gain that nobody had predicted. So if you base it on this, what we saw today, and, and this is a large sample, 3,000 you know, um, uh, consumers, U.S. consumers, uh, and it, what are they seeing? And they're seeing job openings, and uh, jobs are easy to get now, and uh, much easier than they were in March. So that would imply then a, a greater acceleration in um, April payrolls. But as far as tomorrow goes, I mean, Powell will probably have – um, I uh, I might presume have taken some kind of a peek at the GDP report first quarter, but that's not really a market mover or a policy mover. Um, it certainly is, you know, for the press and everything, and for everyone's understanding where the economy is, it's important. But 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 it's a quarterly thing, and it's looking backwards. Whereas the April employment report, which is out a week from Friday, he doesn't probably have any view. That probably hasn't been assembled yet. It, uh, so there won't be any advanced peak for him. So I think he might be flying in the dark there. But uh, And if April does show this extraordinary huge jolt higher, then um, that would be, that could affect or bring forward that moment when they have to communicate to everyone that mm-hmm. uh, policy, with it, it will, the stimulus will begin to be withdrawn. That is going to be a very interesting report. I guess yeah, that's what, next Friday, Friday week, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Watch this space closely.
Okay, tar for that. Um, I suppose compare and contrast. I mean, certainly under coming out of Europe, it's a very different picture. As um, I was saying, it's very much is backward looking now. We're talking about uh, first quarter GDP, particularly in the context of the coronavirus and whatever. But I guess for Europe, because the performance here has been so much weaker than you've seen on your side, although it is backward looking, it could still still be significant if, as seems probable, it's going to suggest that GDP held up potentially a good deal better than originally um, expected. And it is going to suggest that we got signs that economies are adjusting that much better to handling the fallout from the coronavirus. Is there going to be contraction from the yeah, fourth quarter? It, it, it looks very much like it's going to be a contraction. I've got to say, if we go back, let's say, to the beginning of this year, then I think yeah, the typical call was for a, a contraction, a quarter on quarter contraction in European terms of around about 2% or perhaps 2.5%. Uh, the Conde consensus now is running at only minus 0.9%. So yeah, pretty well less than half the original expectation. And saying that being a reflection of the fact that the, the virus, the impact on the Eurozone economy, just talking Eurozone here, uh, the eurozone has not been as great as originally anticipated. Even so, I mean, that's still going to equate with or is going to mean a second double dip recession as far as the eurozone is concerned. It just underlines the fact that it's still an awful long way for Europe to go to get anywhere close to where it was before the coronavirus first struck. In fact, I think if we get the if the minus 0.9% quarterly rate, then just back of the envelope numbers would suggest output GDP would still be about 6% short or so of where it was um, at the back end of 2019 before the virus actually arrived. Mm. Now, the good news, I guess, is that April currently appears to be shaping up quite well. We certainly had better than expected um, PMI numbers for the, the flash indicator for April. The composite output index there was up at 53.7. Now, that's nothing like I know what you've seen on your side of the water or indeed a remarkable 60 plus reading out of the UK. But it was strong, well, indicative of the strongest growth for the eurozone in the last nine months. Um, now, manufacturing saw a new record that was up at 63.3 and we talked before about manufacturing generally um, actually you know, surviving the COVID period pretty well. But I guess more important, we actually saw services move up to 50.3. Now, that's close enough to the 50 mark to sort of suggest nothing much better than stagnation. But mm. it is at least psychologically the first number or posting above the 50 expansion threshold we've seen since last August. So there's signs that perhaps you know, there's, you know, there's the early green shoots have returned to positive growth for the euro zone economy in the second quarter. Mm. That's certainly what the ECB are anticipating. I'll just quickly dismiss uh, last week's meeting really very quickly because nothing really came out of that. The communique was almost word for word in line with what they said at the previous meeting. Um, just emphasise the fact that the pandemic emergency purchase programme remains very much the main tool of quantitative easing. Um, that has been stepped up, but we, they don't give a target for it. So even though the purchases are now running above where they were earlier in the year, it's difficult to say whether or not that's going to be the new level or it may be up a bit more this week or down a bit or whatever we'll just have to wait and see for the time being it does seem that the ecb is very much on hold and wait to see how the economy comes in give us a covid breakdown in europe what the different kind of countries are doing and, yeah. and what what your expectations are it's still very difficult. I suppose the big one really, um, one of the one of the reasons for being cautious about you know, what's going to happen in the second quarter is Germany. Now, as of last week, 
um, Germany or Angela Merkel, I should say, managed to get through Parliament a bill which will give her much greater control over how she's going to actually handle the COVID cases. Um, there have been a number of regions which effectively have been refusing to introduce tighter lockdown measures over the last several weeks. And so Merkel was forced to you know, go to go to the upper house and ask for this new law to be approved. Um, and that now so, means. So th- th- does that mean greater lockdowns or slower easing of restrictions? Well, again, it's still going to vary slightly upon where you go, but a, a, a taken i think the bottom line summary would be it means that you're going to get both tight a tighter lockdown in general um and for longer so this now will is expected to run through until at least the end of may there's some talk that it may still be in place come the middle of june um there's going to be new curfews imposed between i think it's 10 in the evening and five o'clock in the morning so it is going to be by german standards anyway a national basis it would seem it's going to be at least you know a fair bit tighter than what we've seen previously in and contrast that, to, to Italy, right, where they're easy. Yeah. Or, they're, they're open. Well, Italy have certainly gradually started to ease restrictions. In France, even though cases, I mean, it should be said that if, right across Europe now, it does look as if the, the peak of this last wave is, is, is now well past. And all the numbers and hooray for this are actually heading in the right direction. But yes, a, a large number of European countries are now cautiously reopening or reducing their lockdown um, restrictions, uh, really with a view to, you know, to try and make the most of the upcoming summer holiday period. Because countries like Italy and the likes of Greece and in particular Spain, Portugal, they're heavily dependent upon the summer uh, tourist inflow and they really need that to get their economies going again. Now, the risk, of course, is that as ever, and we've seen in the past that the, uh, the lockdowns are ended too soon and we get yet another spike. And it's it's worth remembering when you look at the, you know, the vaccination numbers, I mean, the shares of the population that have had at least one dose um, of the relevant vaccine, according to which country you're looking at. And the EU at the moment stands at about 22%. And that compares with the UK, which is up at 50%, the US, which is in the low 40s. I mean, France is just 21%, Germany 24%. So, you know, there's still quite a long way to go in terms of the vaccine rollout for continental Europe. And it does, you know, just raise this issue as to whether or not they're going to, you know, relax, relax these restrictions too early. Um, at the potential expense of, you know, further problems, you know, down the road. And um, even as we speak, I think today or was it yesterday, the EU Commission have decided to uh, take AstraZeneca to court for not delivering uh, the right amount of vaccine you know, on time, even though it looks as if actually some of the ways for some of the uh, the actual contracts are written up doesn't really give them a leg to stand on. We'll have to see what happens about that. But again, it just underlines the problems they've had in general, you know, trying to wheel out this uh, vaccination process. One bit of good news I should mention on in terms of Eurozone when it comes to policy support is that uh, middle of last week, the German High Court, they threw out an attempt to prevent the ratification of this um, the, you know, the next generation EU, this fiscal support programme that the European Commission uh, put together last year. Um, there were some complaints that the borrowing required to actually fund this thing would work against the German constitution. Uh, but that was thrown out and that was important because if that wasn't going to be ratified by Germany and it's going to be ratified by all the countries, it really would th- have thrown a, you know, a major spanner in proverbial works. Now, as we speak, there's a number of member countries who have still to ratify these proposals, um, amazingly enough. And indeed, in theory, um, in order to be uh, to actually act access the grants or indeed the loans under this fund, 
individual member states had to put forward proposals about how they intend to, to use to use the monies. Now, there's a number of countries at the moment which actually haven't done that yet. And the, the timetable deadline for that is Friday, if I remember right, it's the end of April. So yeah, it's still, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mess, this fiscal support program across Europe mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, and at the earliest, it's going to be introduced at the beginning of July. So it's it really does underline the fact that trying to get through a coordinated, unified fiscal support package for the eurozone as a whole is extremely difficult and sort of makes some of the problems perhaps um, you know, you've had on your side trying to get packages through Congress or indeed trying to get support measures through the UK House of Parliament. It makes them look really you know, a piece of cake. Well, how should uh, the investor look at news on some of the periphery? Uh, European countries of the um, on the east, Poland, um, uh, Czechia, I guess, uh, and Hungary. And now, when when you look at their rates, their infection rates, they're on, on the top of the list. I mean, does this should is this going to be a a net negative for uh, Europe, or is it just a marginal thing? Well, it's certainly be an overall drag on Europe because at the end of the day, we're talking about, you know, in theory, one big happy family and what's good for one should be good for everyone. As you mentioned, countries like Chechnya, they've had you know, some of the, the, the highest infection rates uh, right across the European Union. Now, even over there now, the, the numbers are coming down, but they've been coming down relatively slowly. Um, and the, one of the problems, and I guess you know, one reason why perhaps you know, like sort of Poland, which has, hasn't ratified, as I understand, I don't think they've ratified the deal yet. I think they're expected to. But the reason for an them to do it is because a lot of the the eastern side of Europe are going to be some of the main beneficiaries from the actual uh, fiscal support package itself. So mm-hmm. failing to ratify it would just simply prevent those funds you know, finding their ways into those countries. Is there a, an economic or actual um, medical issue? Um, are these borders sealed for one thing? I mean, what affects these countries? Does it affect Germany and France? Not so much. I mean, there have been periods in the past where against effectively EU rules, because if you think about the single market, it's supposed to be not just about the you know the freedom flow of capital. It's supposed to be about the free flow of individuals as well. And a number of countries were at various times effectively putting up barriers to anyone coming in. Um, but that now appears to be much more a thing of a past. And it does seem that you know, the vaccine, the vaccination rate is gradually being stepped up now. I think um, although they've had problems in a number of countries uh, are not being prepared to distribute the AstraZeneca, even where they can get hold of it, uh, alternative vaccines now are starting to come in, making it that much easier to complete the process. But it's still a bit you know, sort of ramshackle and the idea of a, of a coordinated centre uh, with regards to the distribution of these inoculations, it's, you know, it's really come out of it pretty badly. In contrast, I suppose I should Chris quickly mention the UK, um, where, as I mentioned, the vaccination rate here is doing very well. And I think even as we speak, you know, we've got economies starting to ratchet up their expectations of what the second quarter UK economy is going to look like. It still seems very, un- very likely, I should say, that the first quarter, in line with the eurozone, saw um, a contraction in GDP. But now we've got, as I mentioned earlier, this uh, flash April PMI, the Composite Output Index, up at 60. That's its best reading since what the back end of 2013 um, we've got multi-year highs on manufacturing ditto for services as well 
we've got an easing of a lockdown taking place over the course of the next several weeks. It started off already at the back end of March time. So putting it all together, it does look um, as if second quarter GDP in the UK ought to be a fairly decent number. So I think, you know, the idea of additional easing coming out of the Bank of England at this stage looks to be you know, fairly remote. And uh, when we get the what next Bank of England meeting um, next week, it seems pretty likely I just come out and do nothing at all with policy because things are working. What are they, you know, that, what are they going to do about their a couple months back, a couple meetings back? Was it they were going to investigate the possibility of a negative rates and going to issue some kind of a statement on this yeah. later in the year? Is there it, it, what's going to happen with that? Good question. It comes and it goes, this um, negative interest rates argument. Um, as things currently stand, as you mentioned uh, what, a couple of meetings or so ago, um, when markets were actively contemplating the possibility of rates going negative, as they were thinking this is going to be a really bad first quarter, uh, the bank came out and issued a directive effectively saying it's researching um, into the benefits or otherwise of negative interest rates. And effectively, they're going to send messages out to industry and uh, financial markets to make sure that they would be prepared uh, for negative interest rates by September. So that was taken as saying, well, if they're going to do it, they ain't going to do it until at least September time. So nothing's going to happen now. And in the interim, and it looks like over the next few months, the number is going to be such that negative interest rates are not really going to be a realistic option anyway. But yeah, the short answer to your question is that negative interest rates were put on hold until September when the bank was going to revisit it, depending upon economic circumstances. But there's still some office at the BOE or staff that's involved in, in arranging this or producing this document? Well, certainly, yeah, very much so. I mean, the UK financial markets operate slightly different, um, just sort of the structure of them from what you can see in the Eurozone. So although you look across the channel and say, well, just a minute, the ECB has got a 0.5%, minus 0.5%, I should say, deposit rate, which essentially sets, uh, yeah, it has become the benchmark uh, interest rate for the ECB for the last, well, for the last couple of years or so now. Yeah, UK markets, we still have a 0.1% bank rate. And the bank is concerned about some of the potential implications of negative interest rates and how it would affect the actual efficient working of UK financial markets. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's certainly some members on the MPC who believe that negative interest rates would be a good thing. So, you know, they've gone mm -hmm. away. They're going to do all the, you know, the research and consideration of whether it's going to be a good thing or going to be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And by the time we get to September, one would think in the current environment that negative interest rates should be irrelevant then because we're not going to need them mm -hmm. but it's something which they'll be adding potentially to their toolbox for when we get the next kind of crisis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i guess that's something you know is true of you know be it the fed be it the boj be it any central bank as we emerge from this coronavirus you know new new tools will have been added to their toolbox which may or may not have to be used again in the future mm. Okay, um, I've got anything else? I don't think I've really got much else from my side. Um, any else from yours? Uh, no, just, I, I guess the U.S. is just kind of waiting for this uh, stimulus to dissipate a little bit so you can get some clear numbers. Um, everything is so inflated right now, except for core inflation. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, yeah so, um, uh, and uh, and we're waiting. I guess the vaccination program is, is uh, you know, we're coming to hopefully some kind of a, a turning point here where uh, things can on their own without all the stimulus uh, yeah. uh, start working on, uh, you know, moving forward. And we start looking forward to tax hikes. Good. Yes. 
<laughs> okay then let's us wrap it up there for today on behalf of mark and myself thanks as ever for listening podcast will be back again next week and in the meantime of course you can find all the key market moving data and events listed and analyzed in a global economic calendar we'll see you next time bye for now